0: I'm beyond excited to welcome today's guest. This guest was actually introduced to me and recommended to me by a friend of mine. In 2020, we had our great unlearning and learning when it came to anti-racism. But it's not just a 2020 thing. This is a 2021 thing. It's a 2022 thing. It is the rest of our lives when we talk about anti-racism, we want to hurry up and just learn it all and get it dealt with and be better. Problem with that is is that it's daily work. It's every single day. It's little moments, it's big moments, it's everything in between. It's holding each other accountable and having really great conversations with those who know what they're doing, know what they're talking about and lead the way. Salam Debs is a mother, singer, songwriter, poet, writer, thinker, activist and yoga and wellness professional. She's a black woman. She is a mother of a teen boy. She's the owner of Juicy Yoga Studios in Waterloo, Ontario, and she is so many other things as well. Her anti-racism courses have a wait list, and they often do that I have noticed. Everyone who takes them that I've spoken to has the most amazing things to say when it comes to their own unlearning, their new learnings. And their interactions with her. I'm beyond honored to have her with us today. And I'm very excited to see where this conversation takes us. As a reminder to all of you that I am on my own journey as well. When it comes to learning and unlearning, there is so much discomfort in asking the questions that we're so afraid to ask. And I hope to do us all a little bit of justice by just going there and leaning into that discomfort instead of away in the efforts of us all learning a little more, being wrong sometimes, and being willing to be wrong. Enjoy today's show. All right, welcome, welcome to the show. We've already been talking for five minutes, but I'm so excited to have this opportunity to sit down with you and have such an important conversation, but also just connect with you as a fellow businesswoman and entrepreneur. Uh, tell everybody who you are.
1: Well, my name is Salam Debs, and my pronouns are she/her. I am a mother of a 15 year old boy. I am a a yoga studio owner. I own Juicy Yoga, and I teach yoga yoga and meditation. I'm a holistic life coach, as well as an anti-racism educator, anti-oppression educator, and an advocate, an activist, and a lover of life. I. Love that introduction
0: so much. That was so well put together. Salam, how did you get into doing the work that you do? Because I feel like for someone like me, I definitely didn't even know that there was anti-racism educators that existed. And, you know, I was saying to you before this and and in the pre-roll, your wait lists are. Huge. People are always on a wait list to get into your courses now. And I didn't even know courses like this existed before 2020 and through the great, I call it the the awakening, the unlearning, whatever it is that we want to label it as. This is long game learning. Like this this is not a 2020 thing. This is an everyday thing. And I would love to know how you got into this work. Uh, of really of really providing this um these courses and being an anti-racism educator.
1: Well, you know, I would say that I definitely didn't deliberately choose this work. I would say that in many ways it was like my life experience Growing up in disinvested communities, um, you know, growing up with a single mother, an Ethiopian Black single mother, watching the way that she struggled, um, watching the way in which she had to work three or four jobs to care for myself and for my sister, living in Scarborough and Regent Park. And, you know, just seeing what we had to go through as Ethiopian Black people, as quote-unquote immigrants in, in Canada in so-called Canada and Turtle Islands, and then I guess transitioning into teenage, being a teenager and going through my own experiences of racism, going through my own experiences of always having to fight back. And I do feel, though, when I think about my father and the fact that he was a student activist in Ethiopia and he was fighting back against the government, and he always taught me, and he he was very academic and would teach me about you know what it meant to fight for what was rights and for social justice. And my mother just surviving and seeing that aspect, I think life has always, like most Black people, have, you know, really prepared them for this work, right? Because I, I find that nobody really wakes up, I don't think, and says, I want to, you know, I want to fight and to work to dismantle white supremacy. It's like, that's not a, that's not a real fun thing yeah. to do on a daily basis. And so I was already doing this work um pre-covid, pre-George Floyd and, you know, the critical mass awakening.
0: I found it so fascinating since having a baby how much we care about our little ones' sleep. We worry about them when they're fussy and when they're acting off, and we're like, oh, maybe they just need some more sleep or better sleep. But yet, I don't think of myself the same way when I'm fussy or acting off. Goodnight Sleep Site's new online adult sleep program includes the guidance and education you need to establish better sleep habits and a healthier relationship between you and sleep you'll walk away with a focus on simple steps and practices to change your lifestyle to sleep better. Ways to improve your cognitive relationship with sleep through CBTI and incorporating activities to lower stress levels and quiet your mind at night. This is an affordable, do it at your own pace online sleep program that's created for everyone looking to get a good night's sleep and sleep well for a lifetime right now you can request to set up a complimentary 15 minute discovery call where you can connect with a good night sleep site consultant and they can hear more about your sleep issues and can explain how any of their baby toddler teen or adult sleep programs can be the perfect solution for your specific sleep situation. Also, you can connect with Alana and her team on Instagram at gn sleep site. that's S-I-T-E. If you feel like you've tried everything or you're just too tired to figure it out on your own or simply want professional guidance and support, head on over to goodnightsleepsite.com. Book that complimentary 15-minute discovery call with a goodnight Sleep Site consultant and start your journey towards sleep success. That's goodnight. N-I-G-H-T, sleep site, S-I-T-E dot com. I will say it every single day. I'm trying to just deprioritize hustle and burnout and instead really lift up the conversation around sleep. So I love that as much as we care about our children and our teen and our toddlers sleep, that we can also take that same care and attention for ourselves. That's why I'm really excited about this adult sleep program. And I hope you check it out at goodnightsleepsite.com. Let's go back to the show.
1: Hey guys, it's Gabi from What's Gabi Cooking? And seeing as how we've all got a little extra time on our hands at home, um, hello, social distancing, let's get down to business in the kitchen. Come hang every Monday while we talk about all things food and I answer your burning questions about cooking, ingredients, swaps, tips and tricks, etc. I'm also gonna be highlighting super rad small businesses and we're gonna be learning about other incredible makers in the food world and who even knows what else. Anything's fair game in 2020, right? What's Gabby cooking in the
0: wild? Here we come. I have to ask you a really honest question How do you do this work without feeling resentful? towards white people and, you know, the history and even just the fact that, you know, someone like me is like, it took a George Floyd. Like, I mean, I think we knew it was there, but it took a George Floyd to really be like, oh, there's a lot more there. This is systemic. This is not this one incident this is stuff that I'm a part of. I I hold bias. These are in the movies I watch. It's the way that we portray black people. It's the way that we've been treated we've treated indigenous, you know, folks in Canada. It is so multi-layered and to be honest, I was even annoyed with myself. I was like, how did you, how did this just become into your own awareness now? Why is this only a priority now? And, and I just wonder, like, how does that feel to do this work and do it for those who are in this learning now, or, or even not even there yet and do it without resentment or do you, yeah, how do you do I it?
1: would say that if I'm being really real and being honest, which I always am, I always am, which is, yeah, there is anger and there is righteous anger and pain and frustration. And there are times where I am angry with white people. The reason why is because there are times where, where I hear white folks say things like, you know, I don't know what to do. How can I show up? And I think, and I always say like, but we didn't create this mess right the idea that white people feel that they're separate from this work or they're separate from racism and watching from afar and asking how can i be an ally can be angering at times because you know what it what it implies is that somehow this is an issue that black people are facing or indigenous people are facing or racialized people are facing rather than white folks really realizing that they're not separate from this. You are part of this, Mm. this idea of racism, the experience of racism. You're a part of the ways in which, in the ways in which I've been oppressed and the ways in which you've experienced privilege and benefit from my oppression. And so Yes, there is anger. And I'm I'm grateful that I have a good support team. I have like people around me that ground me. I have ways to like release that anger. And part of it is through education. But I would say this though, um, Sarah and Nicole, that I really don't, I didn't create the work that I created to enlighten white people, but I created the work that I create to, to create safer and more braver and more thriving spaces for Black, Indigenous, and racialized folks. And I think all of us have to really root in this, that, you know, all of our freedom and our liberation is bound up in this work, whether you're white, Black, Indigenous, racialized, no one is separate from it.
0: That is so incredibly profound, and and honestly, just (laughs) huge light bulbs within that as well. In the one anti-racism course that I took, I found it was One thing that the the teacher said to us was instead of looking at this like white supremacy or you know systemic racism, I want you to start labeling it as white violence. And if you start recognizing that you are being violent even by your inaction, perhaps that will like start to awaken you to and I was like, Oh wow. So, you know, there's a lot of this, and I find that one of the struggles where I'm leading to this is. is, In the last year, we've had so many words like anti-racism, white privilege. We've heard so much about, you know, systemic racism that they're almost starting to lose their, like, I don't even know what that word is, that, like, power to them or, like, that great, the weight that they carry and the hurry to kind of unpack and learn. We're getting too used to it. And And it's starting to scare me because I felt it too. At the beginning, it felt like we all had to do something. We were all just... In shock, and we were just, we have to do, we all have to band together and we have to do something. And a year later it feels tired. And I feel like for a lot of people, we're like, how do we just get to the part where we feel better again? How do we and and what would you say to those are like me who kind of had those feelings? We're like, How do I just make this better again? I need to pacify this feeling. I'm gonna do this work. But I do, I want to do it so that I'm right. And I don't have to get back into the work again. And, you know, we've, we've heard the words like white fatigue and stuff as well. How do we really address this is a long-term thing and that there is fatigue in it and that's going to be part of it. But that's how we, we kind of also have to move forward. What would you say to those? Like, what are, what are our steps that we can take to continue this work?
1: Yeah, I think the reality is that Black, Indigenous, and racialized people have been doing this work for decades, for hundreds of years, have been advocating, are tired, are, you know, frustrated. And the reality is that this isn't about just gaining new knowledge and literacy and, you know, building language around being anti-racist or people talk about diversity and inclusion and all of these yes. things, these buzzwords. When I say to folks that we have to move away from this being like a workshop or just a training or just a book that you read, this is literally the way in the way in which you move in the world it looks different, right? The lens in which you see the world look, looks different. So whether we're talking about Palestine or we're talking about Black Lives Matter or we're talking about Indigenous sovereignty or we're talking about misogyny or we're talking about body positivity. Or you know all of that. It is all intersecting. It's Mm -hmm. it is uh, you know dismantling cis heteronormative thinking and ableism and fatphobia and transphobia and anti black racism and anti ingenuity and anti Asian hate. They are all intersecting, and it also relates to capitalism. And it relates to the ways in which we're being more ethical in the world. And so instead of taking on new language or being motivated by Black death, I always tell folks, do not be motivated by Black death. Be motivated by liberation, by sovereignty, by creating policy change, by doing what you can wherever you are in whichever platform workspace that you're at. And to me, it's a lens. It's the way I see the world. I speak differently than I spoke five years ago. I move differently than I spoke five years ago. Even a year ago, I was looking at some of the things I I said last year, and I was like, I don't even know that person. (laughs) Like, who is she? Because, you know, when I I think about how I used to use language like reform and that changed to defund and it's moved to abolish, it, it happens because you can't unsee what you see. When you become aware and the way in which you take in information and the filter and the critical lens that you build, you can't unsee it. So I always tell folks, we're teaching folks to philosophize, you know, the world in a very different way than they used to. You show up differently, period.
0: Yeah. And I, and I really appreciate that you said that. And I think that there's... Sometimes this idea and, and people often in the last few years, they've gone back and they go through their tweets like, have I said anything before? Have I done anything before? and And I do think it's important that if you have anything up that is damaging or potentially hateful, it's probably important to take that down. But I also think that it's a good thing to look back on who you were before and see the corrections and the change and the evolution of a person. I have all my old posts up when I was losing weight, for instance. And the things I said to myself and the way that I spoke online, I will leave that up because I think that it's an important lesson to see that even those who are in the thick of self-hate will portray messages that, you know, say the opposite. I think it's very easy for me to have said, you know, a year and a half ago, I'm not a racist person. Absolutely not. I don't have a racist bone in my body. And I would have believed that to the absolute end until I started looking at all of the bias that was there. The perfect hair is voluminous, it's full, it's shiny, But how does it smell? Function of Beauty's custom hair makes sure that you don't neglect the most powerful of your body's senses. Do you ever like smell something and then you have like an old memory brought back from your childhood? Scent is incredibly powerful and it's probably the body's most underappreciated of the senses. It powers your taste. It creates those memories. And yes, it even unleashes desire. Function of Beauty's team of formula scientists know this and they make scent a key ingredient in every bottle. But what is Function of Beauty? Well, they're the world leader in fully customized hair care. They create your unique formula based on a short but thorough quiz to give your hair everything it needs to look and feel its best. Every product is sulfate and paraben free, vegan, gluten free, and there are over 60,000 real five-star customer reviews. And Function of Beauty fans are absolutely wild about the fragrances and for good reason. Your hair has never smelled so amazing. Try tropical mangoes, sweet peach, crisp pear, or subtler scents such as lavender, rose, or my personal favorite, eucalyptus. If fragrance is not for you, that's okay. You can get unscented as well. Like I said, eucalyptus was my personal favorite, but I would love for you to turn your beauty routine into a aromatherapy session, or a tropical getaway even. So right now you can go to functionofbeauty.com slash papaya to take the quiz and save 20% off that first order. That applies to their full range of customized hair, skin, and body products. That's a functionofbeauty.com slash papaya. That's going to let them know that you heard about it here and to get 20% off your order. One more time, functionofbeauty.com slash papaya. Let's go back to today's chat. I I took this one um, test and it was like just a very automatic. I think it was like done by Harvard. A lot of people took it last year and it showed you, you know, different. And I thought I'm acing this like I've I've got this. There's no way I'm in this. There's I have nothing to do with this. And it was so quick to see how wrong I was. Even on my podcast, I my first anti-racism conversation that I had on my podcast, I asked a racist question in the podcast. So we came back on year two and I'm like, let's look, how did you feel when I asked that question? And she's like, honestly, she goes, you go back into those moments. And she goes, the fact that you asked it and the fact that I was silent and we both, you know, we were both had these moments. And, and she goes, now I would call you out on that. And now you probably wouldn't ask that question. There is a lot of hope in the change that we can create within ourselves and not and change for ourselves. You're a mother of a teenager year over year. I swear month over month. I have a 15 year old too. month over month. They are different people. How have you seen even if you're comfortable sharing a little bit about him as well, um, the changes of what he has experienced in his own change. I, I can imagine as a teenager in Canada and, you know, a black teenager in Canada, we still, Canada loves to think that they're not racist. We still have these things there. How has that even for him been in the last year experiencing this great shift that we've seen?
1: Yeah. I think raising a, you know, a Black boy, a teenager in, you know, these stolen lands on Canada, in Canada. The realization that he has always been experiencing anti-Black racism, like I've always had to advocate from him, for him since he was very young, in school with educators, with, you know, youth calling him the N-word and asking for N-word passes. That was a really big thing that was happening in their schools. White kids asking for those passes and just the humili- humiliation, the dehumanization and I think what was really powerful to watch him, because what I've worked really hard to do is try to help him love himself and also be very aware in society and to be socially aware. I don't have the privilege as a a mother to not teach my son how to move in the world in an aware way. And he started to find music and poetry and arts and spoken word and film. And he has learned to really express himself and share and really has become more of a leader in his community with his peers, about talking about anti-black racism, about sharing you know more about who he is and how he sees the world. And he really loves and stands, embodies black love. And I would say, I fear for him. You know mm-hmm. um, he wants to go to film school in you know two years when he graduates. And I think, like how do I prepare him? Um, realizing that, you know, I grew up in the projects, I grew up in, you know, disinvested communities. And so I have the street smarts, I have the awareness, I know how to, you know, navigate the world. And he grew up, um, you know, being really loved and sheltered by me and his family, and also by experiencing anti black racism. So he's about to get his G1. And it's exciting, but it's also scary. And so so raising a 15 year old black boy is it comes with so much. There's a, a capacity for for growth and for love. And then there's also the part about keeping them safe.
0: Yeah. And, and you said it right there, too, in the fact that you don't really get it. We we get a choice. Like, I get a, I get a choice whether or not I have to talk to my daughter about racism. That is a complete option for me. I would hope to have those conversations with her ongoing. She actually was one of the best in our home when it came to discussing it openly and, you know, with that fiery passion that, you know, teenagers tend to get you don't have that choice it is actually a protective measure that you have to take and even in in the way that we raise our children having this conversation i mean i i don't even know you were saying you're getting your his license and i'm like oh my gosh that's so exciting and then as you're talking about it, I'm playing in my head. You know, we just watch somebody get pulled over and struggle through a trauma situation there in which he phoned his own mother knowing what was about to happen. These are, these are, that's in the news all the time. That's not just a one-time incident. That is the whole thing. How do you experience Black joy? What is Black joy for you?
1: Oh, Black joy is so many things. <laughs> black joy is the way in which I think we call on, we recognize that we come from an ancestry, that we have like a culture and a a resilience. And part of that resilience is one should not have to be resilient. One should be able to not have to have that strength and that power. But our cultures do because we have come from countries that have been impacted by colonialism just like it is here. But also, I always bring Jaleel back, my son, to help him understand his Ethiopian culture and realizing like our music and our food and our pride and the Mm. way that we come together the way that we support each other and I'm always trying to integrate that kind of African diaspora that understanding of all African people of uh, people of African descent across the globe and so really trying to root him in that knowledge and that wisdom and that sacredness and realizing that you know we are indigenous people of Africa of the continent of Ethiopia of Abyssinia and I try to really educate him about his history and help him feel that sense of Black joy. And Black joy, I think is like, for me, it's music, it's art, it's like expression, it's like my laughter. It's like being in a space when you can unapologetically be yourself in all the capacities uh, of what you are. That is for me you know, what brings me
0: joy. I love to hear it. It's honestly so amazing. I remember, I'm going to tell you this quick story just quickly on Ethiopia. I was in an Uber once going home somewhere and my driver was from Ethiopia and he was like, I must tell you about my um, my friend who owns this amazing restaurant. He, most excited I've ever seen a human and he gives me a business card to go to this Ethiopian restaurant. And I was like, I feel like I have to go. Like this person was so excited and so my now husband and I went for Ethiopian dining. Well, I've never experienced that before in my life. There's no cutlery. And it was like this sweet woman comes out and we basically are trying to order off the menu. And she was looked at us and was like, no, <laughs> <And> <laughs> brought out what we were going to have. Yes. And that meal and that experience, it was just, you looked around and everyone kind of, we were clearly the only ones in there that weren't Ethiopian. Everyone else walked in kind of looked at us like, oh, okay. And we sat there and I felt like I was in somebody's home. Like I felt like I was welcomed into somebody's home and enjoying their food and it was such a joyous experience. And that's like the tiniest bit of your culture that I got to experience. And, and I've loved it ever since I my whole pregnancy. All I craved was injera. I wanted it every dang day. It was so good. I was so excited when that restaurant, they're called Warkatree, they're in Guelph. And it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. But I, I just loved it so, so much. I never really thought there was going to be a point in my life where I was really passionate about a water bottle, or I guess it would be a water jug. Hydrojug is just the coolest. They're so stylish. They're so cute. I probably get more questions in my Instagram story DMs that about my water jug than I do on my outfits these days. Hydrojug holds half a gallon of water, has a leak-proof seal, wide mouth opening, a carry loop, an integrated handle, measurement scale, made with BPA-free plastic, dishwasher safe, shatterproof bottle, and you can get a Hydrojug sleeve that insulates your contents and it protects your hydro jug as well. And the sleeve has two pockets, one for your phone and the other for smaller accessories like your keys or your AirPods. And it has an adjustable strap so you can carry your hydro jug. Hydro jug carries half a gallon of water. So that's less time you're spending on refills because Mostly you have to drink about a gallon a day and there's no spills. I can attest to this. I confidently put it into my bag with my laptop right side by side. I've never had an issue and you can track your water with that measurement scale. Make sure that you're drinking enough all day long. Every day, roughly 60 million plastic water bottles are thrown away. By choosing Hydrojug each day, you're becoming part of the movement to stop the waste. You're making a difference. Just one person switching to reusable water bottles saves approximately 217 plastic water bottles from going to a landfill. And in the US alone, 38 billion water bottles end up in the landfill per year. I love HydroJug. We have enough for the whole family. I have them on my bedside table. I have them on my work desk. I have it in my podcast room. I have it in my son has one in his room. We've got them in the kit. I I have them everywhere. We love them. Right now, you can get 10% off with code papaya when you head on over to thehydrojug.com to customize your jug and use my code papaya for 10% off your purchase. Or if you just want to go to the link, that's www.thehydrojug.com slash discount slash papaya. I have the lavender one and the pink one, and I absolutely love them. They are so cute. And I've never been more hydrated in my life, y'all. It is so fun. So check them out and let's go back to today's show. Now I have to ask you though, and because I've heard this conversation come up before and I think it's an important one to call upon because a lot of people were in 2020 and when things started to happen they're like I don't get why I'm not being trusted. Like now I'm just the bad guy, I'm the white person, I'm the bad guy and nobody's going to trust me. And all I kept thinking was how does anybody trust us? How does anybody create relationship with us and friendship? And I looked at some of my black friends like have I done anything? Like there's got to be moments that you've held your tongue. There's got to be, how can I be better? All of these like just floods of that while also learning online, the hesitancy that so many black folks have in creating friendships with white folks, because we will often harm them. We will do it in front of their faces and they will be scared to talk to us. How is it having white, friendships for you? Is it something that you've been able to navigate? Is there ways that you feel you've learned in having those friendships that maybe we could all kind of reflect and learn from as well?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that my experiences with, you know, white friends, I didn't really have many white friends until I moved to Kitchener Waterloo from Mm -hmm. Toronto coming to KW, you know, moving and then being in the corporate world and meeting and, and having white friends. And some of them, you know, these were friendships that lasted for about 15 years or so. And I, you know, what I really realized is that many of these friendships were rooted in me erasing my blackness. Many of these friendships were rooted in me never speaking about racism, never bringing up racism, never talking about whiteness, always being the token black friend. Learning how to deal with the microaggressions on a daily basis, learning how to kind of code switch when I needed to, really experiencing a lot of harm, but learning how to swallow it, and that swallowing again and again was really actually detrimental, you know, to my own sense of self-worth and my sense of identity. And so I felt like I was being two different people. When I was with my cousins and my friends and family who were black and Ethiopian or African or Caribbean, it was you know, I could be me. And then when I was Mm -hmm. with my white friends, and, you know, camping and cottages, and I, you know, I learned how to code switch. And I would say that it took me a long time to be able to face that in a real way, because these were friendships that I truly loved. Like, these were people that were there for me that had my Mm -hmm. back. You know, we trusted each other. But there was this one topic that we weren't allowed to ever speak about, you know, when I was doing a lot of work in the community and they would never mention anything. And I experienced a lot of, you know, racism and microaggressions from them. And I had these two really close white friends who were really like sisters to me. And I finally approached one of them when I was like planning the march here in Kitchener Waterloo, Mm co-organizing it with... And, you know, over 36,000 people showed up, it was a pretty big thing that you couldn't stay quiet on. Even up until that point, everybody was ignoring what I was doing. And, you know, Salam's radical. She's talking about BLM. She's doing all of this um, inclusivity, diversity, and anti-racism work. But this is one thing that they could not pretend that they didn't see. And I finally brought it up and I was like, what's good? Like, what happened? How come you're not there for me right now? You know that I'm hurting and I'm mourning. And the reaction was so violent and so hurtful that it really gave me kind of the thesis to how I do all of my work because it helped me see in that moment how 15 years of friendship and all I had to do is bring up in a nice way, you know, as we tried to do um, in order to not upset white people, that happens often. And I got a lot of violence and a lot of pushback and the friendship ended. And so the reality is like, I don't think we can really sugarcoat this work. It Mm -hmm. does end often in friendships ending. And it is hard to make friends with white folks. And here's the key. The white folks who I am really close to are the ones who are not interested in spiritual bypassing. Like they actually see this work as an essential part of who they are in the world. Mm -hmm. They're not doing Mm -hmm. it to be nice to me or save me or be nice to Black, Indigenous, or racialized people. They're doing it because they see it as a fundamental need in their life. And those people—they're my allies. They're my accomplices. They're my friends.
0: That is—that is perfectly defined. And I think that that is something that we all need to hear and understand if we want to partake in having Black friends or BIPOC friends of of any sort. I think it, it takes you know, love is an action word. I I have to speak that all the time when it comes to myself, when it comes to my relationships, It, it can't be about warm fuzzies and butterflies and, you know, cocktails on a patio. It has to be action. And I think ultimately it is showing up and having those conversations and getting to a place where your friends feel comfortable calling you in or calling you out. And, and knowing that that is part of growth of your relationship. If you were in any other relationship, like I would never, if there was something going wrong in my marriage, I wouldn't just say, oh, it's, it'll work itself out. We're going to be fine. It builds up. You can't ignore this stuff. And any, any good relationship is going to require work and it's going to require effort and it's going to require checking in with the other party and making sure that they're also having a great experience. It's not just you. And I think that we really separated that when it came to, you know, our black friendships We're like, there's your experience. There's my experience. Am I allowed to do that thing with you? Am I not? Are we allowed to say this? Like it comes down to why are we so uncomfortable having conversations where we just straight up ask, like, what can I be doing for you? What, where am I showing up for you? Where have I messed up with you? Can you tell me the times? Cause I'm sure y'all remember the times that we've been violent towards you, the times that we have had those microaggressions. I know firsthand when I learned what microaggressions were, my mind just went like back in history. And I was like, definitely have done that. Definitely have said that definitely have thought that And it's so uncomfortable to learn these things about yourself. It's like, I don't want to make a comparative to, you know, something as simple as an, as a relationship or a breakup, but in breakups, oftentimes at the very end, you tell somebody what you didn't like about it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if you're not asking those questions or finding out those things along the way, we are going to get stuck in toxic relationships, relationships that aren't serving us. And, and I think in this case, We really have to, you know, as somebody who's white, I really have to identify the fact that I was the toxic member of the relationship. And that's a, that's a hard thing to carry, but there's no time for guilt. There's time for action. And, you know, our next step, let's talk about next steps though, in terms of this, You know, long term work when it comes to the day to day stuff, when it comes to these courses, how often do you think we really need to get back into, you know, taking a course like your own or or being in anti racism courses and kind of bringing ourselves back into that work?
1: Yeah. Well, I think even to add to what you were saying earlier is that the reason why folks are really uncomfortable. And when I say folks, white folks are really uncomfortable to do this work or to, to lean into this work is because that is the actual construct of whiteness, right? The construct of whiteness creates this cocoon in which white folks are protected from ever having to talk about race, to think about race, to even be a part of uh, the conversation of race because white folks are taught in our society, and we're all taught this, that whiteness is not actually a race, that whiteness Mm. is human, it's just the benchmark, it's individual, and so forth. And so when we recognize that that is the ways in which white people... And our society has conditioned um, us to even see white people, then a big part of our work is that decolonizing and the dismantling of white supremacy in your own thinking. So even for Black, Indigenous, and racialized people, we have to do that work too, because we have to uncondition and unsocialize ourselves from the ways in which we've been taught to see whiteness as superior or as the default and ourselves as inferior, right? And another aspect is colorism. We've also been taught to see that the lighter your skin, the more proximity that you are to whiteness. So this is a conversation and work for all of us to do. But the tricky part is that with whiteness, whiteness is part of a construct in which teaches you that it isn't about you, that it's about black mm. and racialized people. And so why folks need to continuously in, you know, do this work and training and education And reading and being in conversation and putting yourself out in the line is because there's a really critical thinking lens, like I was sharing before, that you have to build where you start to no longer see yourself as just Sarah Nicole. You start to say, I am a white, you know, all the ways in which you hold social identity. For myself, I know when I walk in a room, I'm a a black, cis, able bodied, you know, hetero woman that, you know, I have all of these identities. And all of those identities are real in the spaces that I'm in. So it's important it's important for me to be aware of them and have like a critical awareness about it. And that quote by Ajamo Alua, where she says, "White people, I don't need you to, you know, learn about me." She says, you know to paraphrase, "I need you to learn about yourselves because your existence has never been, you know, based on that. You've never really needed to know about who you are in order to exist. if if, if anything, white supremacy delusion, you know, coined by Sonia, Sonia Renee Taylor, is this idea that you don't actually have to think about your whiteness. And, and the less you think about it, the, the more, in fact, it stays really concrete. And so, yes, education is 100% necessary, but it's how you take that education into action. Because Education mm. without action is just conceptualizing, intellectualizing this
0: work, which you can't do. Wow. You are an incredible, Incredible speaker. I'm going to almost leave this here because I feel like I really want people to dive into what you do. But I have to thank you first because even within this, I have a whole notepad full of different things. And the fact that I, I do think that we all have such an opportunity here to change our lens and to change how we move in this world, to understand that even our discomfort with identifying ourselves as white, because right now it feels villainous. Mm -hmm. to really take that and take it into action. Think about how we can be less violent, how we can contribute to ending this violence. And, you know, and this is, this is not, I think when we talk about it, it sounds like this big, huge thing that we have to digest. And really it comes down to daily actions, little tiny, little tiny things that build up. And, and I like that, you kind of really put it into that point of it's all about building your lens in the way that we see the world, view the world, move in the world. And when you hear it like that, and this is the problem, even uh, this is my whiteness showing, I need it to be digestible. I need it to be like, okay, I need it into a pill size multivitamin format for me to be able to do this every day, because that's how we're so conditioned and bubble wrapped essentially in this world is to make it very digestible. When, you know, Black folks wake up every day and this is just what they have to face, there is no choice and they don't get that multivitamin experience. So even through this conversation and being reminded of my own you know, bubble wrapped type of mentality. I know that's why it's so important that I'm on your damn wait list. <laughs> and I can't wait to be a part of your course, but I would love for you to share a little bit more about the work you do. Cause I know it's more than just anti-racism courses. You do a lot of other things as well, but maybe just take a moment to tell everyone where they can find you and some of the other workings that you offer as well.
1: Yeah, of course. So folks can find me on salamdebs.com and and there I do have an anti-racism course that I did build pre COVID pre, you know. Everything happening, and then I re you know complimented or recreated it rather um, over over COVID, and it's a, a six module course where we literally uh, really examine ourselves and look at um, Canada's colonial history. It's really rooted in Canada's you know history in learning about Turtle Island, and the creation story of Indigenous peoples, in learning about the enslavement of Black people in Canada for two hundred years, learning about whiteness and white supremacy. About implicit bias, about allyship, about systemic racism, and how to be an anti-racist. And really a big part of like really what what my work sits at is the intersection of healing. So social justice and healing to me are a necessity. Um I used to always think that yoga, the work that I did in yoga and meditation, was somehow separate. I was taught that it was separate in, you know, how yoga has been co-opted by white supremacy. And so, as I started to decolonize myself, I started to realize even through Susanna Bartaki's book where she talks about embracing yoga's roots. And she talks about how that yoga really is at the root of social justice, that that is what we're really here to do because it's rooting in our humanness. It is mm. centering in our humanness. And when we center in our humanness, we realize that no one is free if all of us are, are, are free. All of us must be free in order for all of us to be free. And so that recognition, um, my work is the yoga meditation and how it connects to healing modalities and the anti-racism work and really starting to pour love into our community with that awareness of sharing my own story. The last part of what I do um, outside of the yoga and the anti-racism is sharing my story more and more so that survivors of abuse, um, you know, I was molested at the age of nine, raped at the age of 16, had a, a child at the age of 21. And so a big thing for me is helping others see that their story is their power and that they can find their truth and their power in their story. And so I really invite folks to come to my Instagram page or Facebook to learn more about what I'm sharing and hopefully the book that will come one day soon. Of a compilation of my, my, my story.
0: Oh, I can't wait for that. Salam. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me be a, an uncomfortable white person. As I ask these questions, thank you for letting me, you know, pick your brain on these things and reminding me of, of a lot of this. I, it's been a while since I've had a really good conversation about this and, and it has to happen. It has to happen with our friends. It has to happen with each other. It has to be in the work that we're doing and the integrity that we hold to do that work. So thank you so much um, for your time and for your energy and for your black joy and everything that you are. I really, really, really appreciated this.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Sarah, for having me here today.
0: And for everyone listening, everything's going to be in the show notes for you. You have got to go check out Debs and everything she has to offer. We'll make sure that you have all the information that you need as you go through it. Have a great week and we will see you next week.